7FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Varo Money become the first US fintech to get a full charter, Google team up with eight US banks to offer mobile-first accounts, and Monzo's future is called into question by their annual report. All this and more on today's show. Before we start today's show, we have a special announcement. We are so excited to finally announce our next Fintech Insider After Dark, but naturally, this time it has a 2020 twist. We've gone through the digital, and we're hosting this edition of the event entirely online, bringing the full After Dark experience straight to your laptop or phone screens. No matter where you are in the world, you can tune into this live recording of our podcast and mingle with us after the show. So to find out more and grab your place, visit bit.ly forward slash digital after dark. That's bit.ly forward slash digital after dark, which is all one word and no caps. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to episode 451 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing today, Si? Really well, if a little bit melting, uh, not complaining about that, of course, but it's very, very warm in the UK, uh, which is a good thing. Um, nearly as hot as fintech is, though, so there's lots to get on with. Lots of great stories. No, I couldn't agree more, and great to have you here to run through them with us, Si. And as is now normal, we're also joined remotely by some awesome guests. So first up, making her fintech insider debut, we have Philippa Gerling, Chief Risk Officer of Varo Money. Um, it's been a big week for uh, for you and the Varo team, Philippa, which we'll get on to shortly. So uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's an exciting week to share. Excellent. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. And making a welcome return, we have Emily Nicole, Technology Editor at City AM. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. This is my return is always welcome, but I guess that's a good sign. That's my, that's my general intro <laughs> from you guys these days. <laughs> well, it's generally a good sign if you are returning and coming back. So, uh, I enjoy being here. Well, we enjoy having you. (laughs) All right, guys, thank you for joining us. So, let's get started. Let's dive into our first story. So, this story comes from Finextra and concerns Varo Money being granted a national bank charter. So, Varo Money has become the first US consumer fintech firm to be granted a national bank charter. They were granted a charter by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and has secured regulatory approvals from the FDIC and Federal Reserve to open Varo Bank NA. Varo Money currently provides a range of savings, loans and account-based services through a relationship with the Bancorp Bank. And Brian Brooks, acting comptroller of the currency, said granting a national bank charter to Varo marks an evolution in banking and a new generation of banks. Born from innovation and built on technology intended to empower consumers and businesses. So, first of all, Philip, of course, congratulations. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about this? Maybe what the journey was like, and and, and I guess what opportunities this gives Vara moving forward. Well, it's been a very exciting journey. I uh, I joined Varo only just over a year ago, in March in 2019, and at the time we were already quite a long way down the road to becoming a bank. And one of the pieces we had left to do was to build out the risk management framework. And that's why I joined, to build that out ready for the regulators. And really, for the last 15 months, it's just been a constant upward journey as we, one by one, whack-a-mole every single thing that needs to get done in order to get yourself that um, grand prize, which is the bank charter. And this last week, we've really, it's been hard to have it really settle in that we've done it. You know, it was a lot of work to get it done. Um, but I think we knew what we were doing and we, we knew where we were going. But still, here we are on the other side of it thinking, okay, now what? Yeah, of course, that's always the, the next big question. But right? I think, as you say, obviously a, a huge mountain to climb. I guess we've seen various challenges granted full banking licenses in the, the UK and Europe. Simon, what do you think it says about the US market that, that this is the first and I guess those sort of unique challenges that face fintechs uh, trying to get to market in the US? As a UK um, fin- fintech advocate, I've got to say the, the US fintech scene is so hot. 
uh, right now at the moment. And and Varro have really sort of broken down some barriers here. They're the first, but they probably won't be the last. I mean, we know that Square are going for a charter. SoFi are closing in on one. Chime are looking at it as well. This could be the first of many. Uh, so it really does say a lot, I think, about the US market. And we're seeing ever more challenges come to market. We've had Current on the show a few times who do do an awful lot for the uh, for the unbanked segment or the uh, for the financially excluded. And actually, that's probably a good thing for the consumer, that there is more choice, um, that digital only is becoming the default. Uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, sort of what happens next. Um, will we start to see the much vaunted OCC payments license come to market? Um, because there are some questions about, you know, it, should businesses be going for that or should they be going uh, kind of all the way? But it's uh, it's a super exciting time to, to watch that market develop, I think, Ross. Yeah, I completely agree. And sorry, I know um, 11FS has just released a report into banking as a service. and mm-hmm. You're obviously heavily involved in, in the creation of that. I suppose I'm also interested to get your thoughts on how banking as a service could help to, to mitigate some of the, the major barriers to entry for fintechs and getting to market um, in the US, particularly around, I suppose, some of the cost implications and, and effort as well. I mean, as Philip has said, a huge, a huge uphill struggle to get to where they are. Indeed, but it's, it's, there's a nuance here because if you look at Varro and, and, and Chime and others, it sort of looks quite similar to what we saw in the UK where Monzo and Revolut reached a certain level of maturity and it became more economic for them to get the their own license and to get direct access to the underlying infrastructure. But when you're starting out, your biggest risk is not, can I build access to the underlying infrastructure and can I get a license? It's, will anybody care if I do? Your risk is existential. It's, does it even matter if we build this? So in the first six months, of life, it's can I prove that customers even want my proposition? And if you can reduce the cost of proving that customers would want this proposition, then what you can do is you can attract investment and you can start to scale a business. And there is this new type of provider out there, as you say, Ross, the bank as a service provider, which is sort of like the old payments um, processes, plus, plus, plus. So uh, Galileo is is one obviously very popular in the US, but we've also seen Marketa, and now a whole wave of them are appearing in the market that are dramatically reducing the cost of getting to market, dramatically increasing the flexibility of, of bringing to market. But as uh, you know, uh, Bancor have been a big partner to Varro for many, many years. There are small banks still behind the scenes sort of empowering some of this stuff. Uh, so I think we will see more. It's never been cheaper. It's never been easier to, to bring these things to market. But at the same time, uh, the price for getting all the way and getting that charter is okay, now I'm operating at scale and keeping the charter could be could be another thing entirely as, as we may come on to later as, as we're seeing in the UK as well, Ross. Yeah, so so I guess that banking as a service option helps you get to market. I guess it might be good, Emily, if you could help us explore what some of those um, those barriers are to actually working towards the, the full charter. So are we talking sort of regulatory barriers? I guess what are, what are some of the issues that these smaller fintechs are dealing with? I mean, I can only really speak from the perspective of companies that are coming into the US and needing to get these licenses. Obviously, if you're in the US, you've probably got a, a few, there are fewer regulatory hurdles for you to overcome. First, you've got to make it in America. Um, but when applying for the banking charters, because I think most, it's like Simon said, the the easiest way to do it is to do it the cheapest way first, whether that's banking as a service or whether you go through a partner bank, which is what um, banks like Monzo and Revolut have done. They've signed up with Sutton Bank or others to kind of help them get there first. The charter comes second. Um, while they're still figuring that all out, you then also got the regulatory side of things coming at you. You've already probably put a lot of money into establishing how you fit regulations in other countries um, and figuring out how you fit with US ones would be a big challenge. So there's a lot of money you need to spend in not just applications but also your legal team your compliance team how else you would um all the staff that you might need how else you would fit all of those requirements before you can even get to the idea of the application so sure and um philip i think you, you mentioned that you were sort of brought in to um deal with some of the the, the risk issues and, and the sort of risk strategy interested to get some more of your thoughts as well in terms of are we starting to see now maybe a marked change in terms of how US regulators want to work with um, fintechs and help them get to market and ultimately help them work towards that national charter? Well, I think you heard in the quote from the controller that they're definitely leaning into innovation, definitely more open, 
to let's see what else is out there. Let's see if there's any newcomers who are bringing something that we want to see in the system. And in particular, they're looking for who's catering for the uncatered, who's going to look after the people who are currently underbanked or unbanked. And they see fintechs as potential for that because we have models that are able to do that and reach profitability, which is actually very difficult for an incumbent bank. But having said that, there is in no way that they lighten the load of what you had to do. The regulatory expectation was absolutely the same as a traditional bank. And in fact, what we built was really more like a mid-tier bank because we thought with the complexity and the size of what we're looking to do, we should make sure we have the right frameworks in place. And that's what they expected to see. And so while I think that the there's definitely an opening for me, more people to move towards a charter, the process hasn't become easy. It's just become available. And, and I think that's a really important point to emphasize, isn't it? Because it really rams home, I think, the, um, the scale of, of, of the achievement that, that, that you guys have, have, have obviously achieved. I think, Simon, I think Philippa was probably touching on a, an interesting um, point around how these fintechs can serve as customers. And I think, you know, perhaps pointing to the, the cost of customer acquisition or, or sort of lifetime value. What are your thoughts there? That's yeah. We've we've seen this for a while that digital brands do not have to carry a branch network. They don't have to carry all of that physical infrastructure, and therefore uh, their sort of fixed costs are much much lower. And they so the cost of acquisition can come right down. The other thing is they they onboard a customer entirely digitally, almost end to end. So there's near zero marginal cost. It's sort of between 6 and $12 on average for a digital-only bank to onboard a customer. Uh, industry benchmarks I've seen is that a branch onboarding comes closer to 200 to $250. It's an order of magnitude less. And then when, you're, when you've got that customer, you don't have to hit as high a watermark in terms of lending to them in order to make that customer profitable, especially if your infrastructure of, of cost of running the bank is much, much lower. But of course, once you take on a charter, as Philip is, I'm sure, no doubt feeling, keeping that license becomes really, really important. And then that, that sort of cost of acquisition versus the cost to serve uh, it starts to starts to become really interesting. So I almost want to wind the clock forward five and 10 years and see if these economics still still make sense and how much a digital bank can start to scale. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Philippa, as you look forward. I think uh, it's really important that we think differently about some of the fundamentals. And certainly, in the risk management space, we have to think about things like data, model governance, BSA, anti-money laundering compliance. I mean, we have to be smart about them. And one of the advantages is not just the advantage of not having a physical infrastructure to maintain the branch system. It's the opportunity to build it from scratch. And I think most banks would love the opportunity to completely build it from scratch. And I have to say that for years, I've been working in financial services, trying to innovate from within legacy infrastructures. And it's just really difficult to change from within. What we tend to do instead is innovate on the edges, come up with some wonderful innovation in a legacy bank and bolt it on the side. Whereas if you start from a fintech kind of a paradigm, you can actually build it from scratch using the latest technology, making sure it's all AWS and cloud, making sure that you have a data lake. All of these things are actually now the natural infrastructure instead of a bolted on evolution. And I think that's really where the expense management comes to the front is that we can actually just do things more efficiently. I think that's such a lovely point as well. And, and a nice way to think of it, that you guys have an opportunity that I think most established incumbent banks would absolutely kill to have. Um, I guess in that same vein, Philippa, what can you sort of um, share with us in terms of what's, what's coming down the line for you guys from like a, maybe a product perspective, a proposition perspective, um, and, and, and sort of what's next for, uh, for Varo? Well, exciting for us now that we are our own bank in that the product development and product approval process is all ours. And this means that we can do whatever is allowed to be done in the banking sector. When you're working with a sponsor bank, and Bancorp has been a really excellent sponsor bank for us, um, but obviously they have their own mission statement and strategy that we then need to fit within, whereas now we'll be masters of our own destiny. And we're looking at how can we really service in small dollar lending, for example, the underbanked population in America. I think that if you look back to the very start of VARO, you'll see this has been mission driven from day one. Everybody who's joined VARO has been coming to the table to try and find a way 
to provide fair access to fair financial services products for the people who've been denied that access. So we'll be really focused on that. And all of our new product approval process, which of course is something I'm very interested in as a risk manager, um, is focused on what can we do to provide access to credit, access to cash flow to people who are struggling with that access. And that's really yeah. going to be the first steps that we take. And and such important steps and such an important ambition. I think you guys um, are onto great things. So just to reiterate my point at the top, um, congratulations. I'm going to move us on uh, to our next story. Uh, this one also comes from Finextra and concerns Google offering co-branded accounts with eight U.S. banks. So these eight U.S. banks have teamed up with Google to launch mobile first bank accounts within the Google Pay app. Google is calling the project Cash, and it'll partner with banks and credit unions to offer the checking accounts with the banks handling all financial and compliance activities related to the accounts. The new platform will pair Google's expertise in creating intuitive user experiences with the security of a reputable bank to provide a new way to manage money with financial insights and budgeting tools. When launched in 2021, the co-branded FDIC-insured digital accounts will be offered via Google Pay and built on top of the bank's existing infrastructure. The new banks coming on board include Bank Mobile, BBVA USA, BMO Harris, Coastal Community Bank, First Independence Bank, and Sefku. The tech giant is also said to be developing physical and virtual debit cards that would be co-branded with the financial services players, although details on this aspect have not yet been disclosed. So we heard from Cheyenne Kwaja, BBVA USA Head of Partnerships Program, to find out more. So let's hear from them now. BBVA USA is one of several banks collaborating with Google to offer consumers a digital bank account through Google Pay. Working with Google is consistent with the bank's focus on organic growth. It capitalizes on the innovations that have changed the way we do business and demonstrates our standing as a strategic, innovative partner for tech companies of all sizes, thanks in large part to Open Platform, our open banking initiative. We anticipate that collaboration with Google will help us reach more consumers more efficiently using digital means, something that both underscores our five-year strategic plan and is imperative to be successful in today's current environment, while customers benefit from useful insights and budgeting tools. The collaboration with Google represents a significant step for BBVA in creating opportunities for both the bank and for consumers. Right. So um, I think lots in there. Emily, I'm going to come to to you on this one first, because I guess as technology editor at City AM, this is a a big story. I guess it'd be good if you could uh, help us understand really how big a deal this is. I mean, yeah, it's pretty big. We haven't seen a lot from Google in the financial services or banking space to date. Obviously, they have Google Pay, but then all of the smartphone providers do that now. So it's not necessarily remarkable that they have that. Um, And after Apple launched its credit card with Goldman Sachs, everyone was thinking, okay, well, who will be the next tech giant to kind of muscle in? And it's definitely an interesting spot that they've acquired, right? Because Apple is doing credit with Goldman Sachs. Facebook is almost targeting payments and digital wallets with Libra and Calibra. So for Google to take over with this like banking section, especially checking accounts, is quite interesting. Um, but from the sounds of it, it also sounds like it will be quite a US-focused way of doing things, especially in the beginning. They'll have to come up with new ways of establishing all these things if they're going to make it international outside of America. Um, so it's definitely interesting. And the idea of them having co-branded cards that are physical or virtual I assume aren't far away it's hard to have a checking account without a card so we'll see where they get with that one but yeah and that was interesting isn't it I mean you you mentioned the um the apple cards we know that they haven't sort of confirmed one way or another about the the co-branded physical payment cards or virtual payment cards do you see this as a, a genuine route for these guys to actually start competing with the apple card I think so, because if we if we look at the trends of over the last few years, even in a country that is so credit heavy as America, it is definitely trending towards more people using debit and checking accounts. Um, a lot more young people favor the idea of debit accounts than credit. So for Google to be taking over that space is definitely a good business move. Apple will be extremely reliant on the idea of people still using credit cards. And obviously, that will stay around for a while. But I wonder whether for example, coming here, whether that would be a hindrance to them. So Google is in the right space for sure. 
but relying solely on digital and Google Pay in the beginning, I mean, I don't have an Android phone, so I won't be using it. Um, and that limits them somewhat. Yeah, it absolutely limits them. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's it's kind of all about the US this week, but um, in, in a large way, I guess it's it's also all about banking as a service. Yeah, it is. Uh, th- uh, somebody with a Pixel phone, uh, this, this story initially excited me. Um, sorry, Emily, but we are out there um that we do exist um to, look if somebody said to you as a bank i'll help you acquire deposits at near zero marginal cost um and the, the that would be pretty tempting uh but you have to give up your brand that's all that's always been the thing that banks have really struggled with historically is actually the brand was what helped them acquire deposits but more importantly the business model was predicated on that brand helping them then lend so you've got to wonder about sort of what's what's the the long term conversation here and, and involvements for the for the banks because if it, if this moves both ways if it's checking but then the banks can deploy balance sheet in other words they can push lending up to these these users of this new Google service actually that starts to make a lot more sense for, for the banks than than it otherwise would um, I love that it's called Cash C A C H E. The nerd in me just thinks that's absolutely brilliant, <laughs> especially if it's doing amazing things with data, that Google can do amazing things with data. But I've got to be honest, I saw this and I worried. Um, and I'm a massive Google fan. I love that on their campus, they have a dinosaur named Stan. Um, I signed up for Google Wave and thought it was a brilliant product. Um, but I, I, ah, this what re- the line that really stuck with me from this press release was... Uh, they are working with the banks and building on top of the bank's existing infrastructure, but they're partnering to offer the checking accounts and using some of their uh, expertise, creating innovative user experiences. So when you think Google, you don't think UX. You think great at data, great at infrastructure, great at speed. Uh, if your differentiator here is going to be UX, mm, if your differentiator is going to be, my God, what can these algorithms do to save you money, consumer, or to help you lend responsibly, consumer, uh, to help the banks uh, identify pockets of risk? And maybe that's what the story is, and maybe that's between the lines on, on this, but I just don't want to see this end up on killedbygoogle.com. Like, I just, I really want this to succeed. I do think that big tech eventually is the natural ecosystem player at which all of this stuff aggregates. And you can see this by looking at China. Um, You can see this model already emerging elsewhere in the world. Um, But I just get the sense that this might not be it. Um, Or if it is, it's going to need a collection of different banks. And BBVA is quite possibly the most innovative of all of the traditional banks. Their open platform maybe is the one that really enables them to, to do this well. Um, but it's when it says it's integrating with the existing tech infrastructure to all of the points that Philippa was making earlier, that's actually going to prevent a lot of innovative things from happening um, versus what Apple's done with Goldman, which is an entirely new tech stack. And I, actually, a lot of what they're doing is is uh, kind of enabled by that. Yeah, I think I think I'm with you, Sai, in that I really want this uh, to succeed. I'm also with you that it's not going to succeed if, if this is purely a UX play by by Google and, and sort of where I was hoping right. that this would go is that they're really taking what they're talking about financial insights mm-hmm. and budgeting tools almost to the next mm-hmm. level I think um Cheyenne Quadja mentioned in the the cutaway the the potential to reach for customers more efficiently and that being one of the the big benefits for the banks but what's interesting is from what you're saying it almost sounds like there might perhaps be a more cynical sort of cross-sell or upsell play for the banks further down the line well, and, and that's not a bad thing if it's in the interests of the consumer. Sure. Uh, but banks' infrastructure costs a lot of money. So having deposits is fine. But as we've seen in the in the pandemic, you can have too many deposits. If you can't lend and if you can't address risk, you've got a real problem. Banks always, they didn't historically make money off holding the deposits. They made money off the lending that that enabled them to do. Whereas you know Google's algorithms, in theory, Google's ability with data, they should be the best at lending in the world. They should be the best at helping the banks distribute that balance sheet. So if that's what the partnership is, this could be a masterstroke. It could be genius. But I, I just don't see that in this this feels like what do we do in, to compete with apple card a little bit too much but it was felix lynn the vice president of payments ecosystems at google says we believe we can use our technology expertise to benefit users banks and the ecosystem so maybe there's a lot more to come you know and maybe it's not all all things have been revealed i, I really hope it goes it goes that way soon sure i think um 
you know, we've we've read that the, the these accounts will be co-branded with the banks. Um, they're going to be FDIC insured. Um, Philippa, again, sort of going back to your knowledge of the U.S. market, but also the the sort of risk and control function side of things. I'm interested to get your thoughts around how how important it's likely to be for customers that everything that Google is bringing to the table is actually backed up by the security of, of recognizable and, and, and trusted incumbent established it's such, a, such an interesting story to me because it shows so many aspects of where things are going. First of all, that Google wants to be in this space. You know, I think 15 years ago, we probably didn't think Apple and Google wants to be in this space. Now it's the place to be, which means payments and movement of money is the really interesting place to be. So that fascinates me. The fact that they're linking with so many incumbent banks is a, I'd love to get more on that. Why do we want to have so many different institutions? What is the benefit to Google of having multiple institutions? And I think the real underlying question is, what is great about this for the consumer? What is it that this partnership is bringing to the table that's really enticing for a banking customer that they're going to move and take this as the direction that they want to go? The regulatory requirements are all going to sit on Google. They're not moving those to the banks. They're still going to have to make sure that those banks are providing all of the regulatory controls that need to be there. So it's not as if they just push that off onto the banks. The regulators in America are very clear that whoever is at the front is the person who's responsible for what's going on behind. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think there is a potential outcome here where it's win, win, win. Um, win for the banks, win for Google, win for the customers. But I guess what we're sort of collectively saying here is that the route to that as of yet isn't quite clear. Yeah, and I think Sai's right. I think there's more to this story, and I'm really interested to see what the more is. Great. I think, uh, Simon, uh, throw to you for a final word on this one. So there was a seminal blog post by Matt Harris, partner at Bain Capital Ventures, about nine months ago on uh, Forbes, FinTech, the fourth platform. So he, he says that the first platform was really the internet and connectivity. The second one is really around cloud and, and, and everything that brought. The third one was mobile. And he calls FinTech the fourth platform. And ultimately, what you see is this really starting to emerge. And uh, the old model of banking is a fundamentally different model to the new platform model of finance uh, and embedded finance. And actually, that macro shift is a is a bit of a it's a bit of a mind screwer. You know, you've got to really get your head around it and take some time with it. And actually, big tech coming to this space—they're all trying to figure out what it means because it's fundamentally. You can look at China and you can even look at India and say where they are is much more advanced in many many ways. But there are reasons why that is. The the market is much messier in the West in a lot of ways. And it's as an observer, it's just phenomenal to watch all of this play out. Yeah, it's a nice way to sum it up, isn't it, in terms of like, it, it, it is pretty unsettled and, and a lot is just still TBD. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here. Be back shortly. Before we start today's show, we have a special announcement. We are so excited to finally announce our next FinTech Insider After Dark, but naturally this time it has a 2020 twist. We've gone truly digital and on the 25th of August, we're hosting this edition of the event entirely online bringing the full After Dark experience straight to your laptop or phone screens. No matter where you are in the world, you can tune into this live recording of our podcast and mingle with us after the show. So to find out more and grab your place, visit bit.ly forward slash digital after dark. That's bit.ly forward slash digital after dark, all one word and no caps. Banking as a service is deconstructing the banking stack. It's enabling brands to embed finance more easily and to tailor financial products to specific customer needs. This is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks extra revenue streams. Download our report for a comprehensive, no BS view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service, all lowercase. FinTech Insider listeners, we need you. If you listen to the show, whether this is your first episode, your 451st episode, or you dip in and out, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to give us your feedback and suggestions to help shape the future of the show. We want to know what you like, what you don't, and where we can improve, because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, and want to make it even better. To help us out, please take a moment to visit 
bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. It shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete, but it would mean so much to us. That's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. Thanks and on with the show. Our next story comes from Finextra and concerns Monzo announcing concerns over its future with its annual report. So the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic is acutely felt in Monzo's annual report, which shows a £113.8 million loss for the year. The group director's report is equally blunt, stating that the directors recognise there are material uncertainties that cast significant doubt upon the group's ability to continue as a going concern. So quite strong language there. As the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on its business began to bite, Monzo had to accept a 40% cut in its valuation in a June fundraising, with £60 million raise valuing at £1.25 billion, down from £2 billion last year. So um, I guess lots of mainstream uh, media outlets ran with this story this week. Uh, Emily, it'd be good to throw to you first on this one and uh, get your thoughts. Yeah, so I think it was a bit of a, a different take from lots of people in terms of media response, but the main thing being that Monzo basically throwing forward and saying, past the next 12 months, we're not too sure if we're going to be able to continue to operate as a going concern, which is the standard accounting talk for a healthy business. Um, And so we can only really let you know what we're going to be like for the next 12 months. But after that, we're really unsure. And that's not something that every business says, but it's not completely uncommon in technology either. Um, One uh, auditor on Twitter said, you know, this is just us saying we don't know what the future is like. Um, and noting that, you know, before the pandemic, Deliveroo said something very similar in their accounts. Um, so it's not completely uncommon. Deliveroo, however, is now doing very well because we're all ordering takeaways. So different story there. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that things aren't all Gucci over at Monzo. Um, it, having to accept a 40% cut in its valuation is not great. Um especially as you know we haven't really seen fintech investing going down a whole lot in the last six months a lot of banks have still been able to raise um starling raised 100 million revolut i think got another 80 million on top of their 500 million rounds so it doesn't the fact that they had to take that big cut is actually quite significant um but then compared to how others are also faring we've also seen starling have just released their accounts um and for them it's a bit of a completely different story Obviously, they're a lot smaller than Monzo, so you do have to keep that in mind. But while so while their losses doubled at the end of last year, they went from 26.9 million loss in 2018 to 53.6 million in November last year. They're still saying, we're going to break even by the end of 2020 and we're going to be profitable month on month in 2021. And we've not had to lay anybody off, whereas Monzo has had to lay off a few staff this year, unfortunately. Um, so it's definitely a really diverse landscape at the moment in terms of how digital banks are coping with the pandemic yeah i totally agree and and and, you know i suppose it is understandable to a point that um some of the viewpoints taken by the mainstream media were somewhat sensationalized um you know going concerned and language like that obviously is 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 quite aggressive um so lots there in terms of you helping us obviously to understand what's really going on but i think obviously the 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 starling bank comparison is is probably the most interesting because there was lots of pushback to those media positions on Twitter, as you quite rightly said, saying they have to put this in here. But um, interesting just to see the foil. What are your uh, what are your thoughts, Sai? Uh, so the numbers uh, stick out to me in, in, in both of them, right? So from Monza's perspective, they've got 4.5 million users, but they're struggling to make profit. Um, Starling has 1.5 million users, but is, is close to breaking even with an annual revenue run rate of nearly 80 million. Uh, and I think that's sort of the core of it here. You, Ask anybody who uses Monzo and, and ask them, are they likely to give up the service anytime soon? It's like, no, people love this app. Um, but I th- as much as um, Alphaville like to um, have their tongue in their cheek, uh, FT Alphaville, the journalists, have really nailed it when it's like the bank that doesn't want to be a bank. Um, I love Monzo to bits. I think they've created a great user experience. But almost the the initial 
thesis was that it would become a marketplace and they would monetize through things other than lending. Um, but actually, the natural aggregation um, place of this is where my money lands is is actually a great place to do lending from. And maybe the place to do marketplace isn't in the bank account. It's above that in some way. It's in the uh, apps that are the PFMs, the the plums, the snoops, the uh, the chips and uh, co-pilots and, and all of those sorts of apps. Or maybe it's even above that in, in cash by Google or, or somewhere else. So, you know, I think it's been it's been overblown a little bit. Um, the the Emily says, uh, you know, we saw Deliveroo and many other businesses use this language. We've also seen uh, the regulators push for a lot more capital controls, which makes it even harder to do what they were going to do. They're in a hard spot, but I'm pulling for them because more choice for the consumer. And if nothing else, Monzo has definitely changed what every big bank's app looks and feels like, um, and probably been the design inspiration for many others around the world. Uh, and uh, you know, they've they've got back on their feet, and hopefully, they can do a lot, lot more. Uh, Emily, you were going to jump in. Yeah, because I think you're exactly right that it's like Monzo is the bank that just doesn't want to lend. And Anne Bowden, who's the boss of Starling, was very much um, of, of the opinion that the reason why Starling is doing so well is because they are a bank that lends. A lot of where their income and revenue is coming from is the fact that they now have a loan book that at the um, end of 2019 was under 100 million and now it's over a billion because they've been lending with the coronavirus bounce back schemes. Mm-hmm. Um and that boom for them has really been instrumental in how they've been able to turn things around. They've also had some pretty good data in terms of how people are spending with their cards. Average um, spend for both consumer and business accounts is rising. Um, so obviously, people are using those accounts as well. But lending is really where Starling is making its money. And so they just they spent the last few years really putting all of their cash from backers into building a really great infrastructure and now she's she's very much of the opinion that it's their time to shine and we're going to see them actually start to release a lot more stuff and come out with better products that may even put them maybe on the same par as Monzo in terms of customer numbers eventually. So, Yeah, it's interesting to see because it sounds like we're kind of saying that there might be a, a potential pivot, I suppose, for Monzo as they sort of react to this and sort of digest it in terms of what what's coming next for those guys coming down the line. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite curious, Philippa, to bring you in. I think Emily mentioned uh, the the 40% cut in Monzo's valuation and their, their most recent raise, and you know, that's reportedly due to the Bank of England hiking its capital requirements. I wonder if um, the regulator's starting to get a little bit nervous, maybe we've created a monster, or is this just being financially prudent given the current situation with COVID and everything else? I think it's really fascinating to watch challenger banks right now as we go through what is just unprecedented times. And certainly for us at Varo, in February, we're looking at the coming year thinking, what is this going to mean for us? Here we are on the cusp of becoming chartered. We're just about to close our Series D and there's a pandemic. So first of all, we all have to go home. So we all have to go home, work from home. And then we need to see what are our customers going to do? Are they going to continue to come? at the same pace, or is the economic pressure going to really damage the model that we have? And I'm sure that Monzo is looking at that very carefully to see all of the assumptions that we've made, do they hold true when we're put under crisis? And your comment on capital is really interesting because obviously what the regulators are always looking for is do you have enough capital to survive a crisis? It's lessons learned from 2008. And if you're going to be a bank, you need to make sure you have the capital that you need and a model is going to take the stresses and continue to grow. And to our surprise, we actually have continued to grow at exactly the same pace that we did. And we closed our Series D and we got our charter. But that doesn't mean that we're settling on that, thinking everything's fine. We're still looking at the rest of the year, thinking, is there anything we need to be ready to pivot to make sure that we're responding to the situation that we're all in right now? Yeah, it's really, really interesting, um, I think, to get those insights. We love that word unprecedented now. You know, it's probably the most precedented use of unprecedented <laughs> um, that, that we've ever seen. But absolutely, I think, reacting to um, reacting to what's coming down the line. We've never seen something that's going to stress test those models, like you quite rightly said, as, as, as we are now with COVID. Um, not to be too antagonistic, but I do want to just throw this out as a point to the uh, – to all of you, what's the role of EY in all of this? And I think especially in the context of the Wirecard scandal, are we seeing a bit of a knee-jerk reaction? Obviously, they audited the 
the Monzo accounts, are they being ultra conservative now and trying to make sure that all bases are covered in terms of the language in those accounts? Well, an auditor's always going to be conservative, right? They're almost in an impossible situation, to be fair to them. Um, they're supposed to catch everything. And um, there's no forgiveness for auditing companies. So I, it's, a tough, it's a tough business to be in. But um, I would anticipate that they are being very conservative in the language that they're using to ensure that they are in a secure situation as well as the institution that they are auditing. And um, that's, you know, that's the life that they have to lead. Of course. Yeah, it's pretty unforgiving. I think that's a really useful call out. Okay, I'm going to move us on. So our next story comes from the FT and concerns HSBC's profits plunging 96% as loan loss provisions jump on coronavirus. So uh, HSBC unveiled an almost seven times jump in reserves for bad loans and a huge drop in second quarter profit, thanks, of course, to the damage inflicted by the coronavirus crisis. The bank said provisions for potential loan losses surged to 3.8 billion in the quarter and means HSBC has set aside $6.9 billion to date for souring loans in 2020. They have also raised its forecast for provisions for the full year to between 8 billion and 13 billion, reflecting the deterioration in consensus economic forecasts. The bank also said it planned to accelerate its 35,000 job cuts program announced earlier in this year and may also consider further restructuring measures to trim costs. So, I mean, pretty bleak, but I guess, Cy, the uh, earnings earnings reporting season was never going to be pretty in the current climate, right? It wasn't, and uh, it, it's not surprising that they're setting aside a lot and remain well capitalised. So, again, the, the theme for me is whilst this these are big numbers, they can set this aside and they look – uh, this is not a banking crisis. This is a main street crisis, which if, if anything should give us, uh, it's, it's the silver lining on a, on a pretty hideous cloud, um, all things considered. Um, and they're not alone. Santander's put more than 7 billion euros aside. Barclays, 3.7 billion pounds. Lloyd's, 3.8 billion. Uh, the six largest US lenders have put a, more than $61 billion uh, collectively, um, which is levels last seen just after the financial crisis. So look, it, it, it all seems actually very, very prudent. These numbers make for flashy headlines. I think what's going on underneath it is probably more interesting to me, um, which is what now? Because you can absorb these losses, but how do you get back to profitability? Can you just cut your, cut your way out of it? Is it just going to be that we see what we saw after 2008, which was closing of branches and digitizing a paper process? Um, are we? You know, uh, The bank announced it's going to accelerate 35,000 job cuts. That may uh, help them from a from a cost side, but is it going to help them win when we're seeing more fintech companies come to market with a lower cost of acquisition? What's their strategy going to look like if their balance sheet has more deposits on it? And how do they lend? Because interestingly, in this market, uh, a business that might actually be uh, a strong business, are they... Are they underwater because of the crisis or were they a bad business all along and the crisis has flushed it out? And, and how do you tell that? And if what you, if the way you lend, if your credit committee is predicated on, well, this is what we know from the past 20 years of lending and this is how, how we built our credit models, that's fundamentally different to looking at the income statements of the bank right now, uh, not the bank, of the, of the business and having real-time data about what's happening in the market. So this could be a time at which a lot of the banks fundamentally shift how their internal operations work for the ones that get it right. Um, Philip, I guess this is a subject near and dear to your heart as well. It is. And, you know, I think the traditional methods of lending, are they actually going to survive this current year? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they are because we may need to find other ways to determine whether somebody has the willingness and ability to repay. And it might not be based on what we traditionally have looked at for that willingness and ability to repay because it's just not going to be there. But we still need to make sure that we have a working financial system that allows people to invest and grow their businesses. And so it's going to be a fascinating time to see how are the legacy banks going to respond to this and how are the challenger banks going to respond to this? And also, how is the consumer and the business going to respond? Where is their confidence going to lie when they look to borrow? I, I couldn't agree with that more, I think. Um... Philippa, your point about um, the 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 big banks not being able to compete with some of the advanced technology of um, 
some of the challenges. I think it's a really interesting one. And, 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 you know, we talk about lending a lot. You guys just mentioned lending. You know, when you compare some of the more traditional uh, credit risk decisioning models that some of the big banks have and then compare them to some of the more, um, the more modern um, affordability models that the likes of a firm and, and, and Klarna and some of these, uh, these newer tech companies have, Simon is very different. It really shows that they're sort of under the cost, right? So, SoFi's uh, entire lending business doesn't use a FICO score. This was a fact that when I found it, blew my mind. Um, but actually, what's they, they just look at, d- does this person pay their bills on time? And that's a better indicator of somebody's ability to repay than it is the FICO score. And it's, it's, it's an old saying in technology that data wins arguments. And it's nuts to me that people hold on to these orthodoxies of, well, but that hasn't been through the cycle. Well, now it's going through the cycle. And, and for some, it's winning and for some, it's not. And this, I think, is often confused with peer-to-peer lending, uh, which is a different thing. Peer-to-peer lenders who may have had credit committees who were doing lending that was wholesale funded in this market have really struggled. But people that were able to lend and that could price risk differently – it's almost like a it's, it's a two it's a completely different market and uh, I think about companies like Credit Kudos and many others um, that that use Plaid and, and cleanse the data in really really interesting ways and then they're able to train data sets when they get more and more data so it's not that they've built a risk model over years of seeing cycles and then they've kind of almost got these spreadsheets where they have certain things they're looking for and then building a process around it it's that they've got this reactive model that's learning and growing over time and I know a lot of um, incumbent banks are looking at that and trying to get that done and have it in pockets but actually trying to sort of chisel that into your existing process is a lot lot harder than kind of building it from scratch so they've got a heck of a challenge and i think philippa that was to your point earlier about um sort of you've you've tried to do it from within before yeah and i think the heart of this is going to be ai ml right so if you're using artificial intelligence or machine learning to come up with new ways to lend then you also, if you're going to do it within the banking sector, it has to also meet all the regulatory requirements around model governance. So you have fintechs who are very happy to innovate with AI ML, but could not get those models validated if they were within the banking sector. And then you have banks that would love to experiment with AI ML, but their model governance is so cumbersome that it's going to take them months to get this thing approved. So one of the things I'm really excited about is this opportunity to find ways to build in model validation in a new bank, so that as we develop models that could be used for lending, we can be self-validating them on the fly. And I think that's really where the opportunities lie in the future, to be smart with the technology for the benefit of the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And also um, how these um, models are constantly updating and responding to the different climate that we find ourselves in that just says that they're going to be more uh, better positioned to deal with what's going on with things like COVID. Uh, Emily, last word to you on this one. It was just a thought I had when we were speaking about, you know, how banks are going to find new ways to lend. And it reminds me of the fact that Metro Bank just bought Ratesetter for a very cheap fee, um, only 12 million when it was 43 million that investors had put into it. And it almost seems like while Metro Bank's results this quarter were also not great, maybe this was the best thing for them to do right now. It's a good company for you to be thinking about buying when you're trying to think, figure out new ways of lending and who knows whether peer-to-peer lending is actually going to be something that continues during this crisis, but there's definitely going to be some technology in there that Metro Bank could probably really use. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the rate setter example is a, a really harsh illustration of the, the challenges of a, a downturn, a cycle, as we keep saying, like uh, COVID-19. Um, I'm going to move us on. Uh, so our next story comes from Bloomberg, uh, concerns Apple buying startup to turn iPhones into payment terminals. So Apple has acquired MobiWave Inc., a startup with technology that could transform iPhones into mobile payment terminals. So MobiWave's technology lets shoppers tap their credit card or smartphone on another phone to process a payment. The system works with an app and doesn't require hardware beyond a near-field communications or NFC chip, which iPhones have included since 2014. This would put Apple into more direct competition with the likes of Square, a leading provider of of payment hardware and software for smartphones and tablets. Uh, Emily, let's come to you first on this. Obviously, you cover big tech a lot. I guess the the big question, is this just Apple bought a thing or does this signify something much bigger? I think it could be either, really. I'm going to go really into Apple right now, so apologies to Simon here. Um, But Apple has been known to just 
buy a company and then you never hear of them again. Bedit is a really great example of that. It was a company that did um, sleep analysis technology. Everybody thought, great, well, this is the sign that Apple's going to really get into the sleep analysis game and maybe the Apple Watch is going to become a really good tool for that. And we've really yet to see them use that technology to their advantage. And that was a long time ago. So there's no real indication that MobiWave will become that for Apple. But on the other hand, the fact that that Apple wants to do something with their NFC chips is also interesting because I know they've been criticized in the past for not using them in the way that we've seen other phone makers use NFC chips before. Um, and I mean, yeah, maybe they'll be they'll turn iPhones into um, POS systems um, like Square and iZettle and the rest of them. But I also do think I'd, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable if I was a business giving up my personal phone to be like, OK, here, use this as a POS or even buying an iPhone, which costs so much money and turning that into a POS. It's a big it's a big investment. Right. So who knows what will happen with it? Yeah, definitely interesting as well to consider it from um the user's perspective, small businesses and, and the sort of usability. Um, Simon, I guess uh, with someone with uh, equally strong views on Apple, it'd be good to get your uh, your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I mean, Emily makes a good point. Uh, you never hear of a company until you do. And it, sometimes it's two, three years, and then it pops up as Siri or it pops up as something else. And this this could take a long time before we see what happens with it. But everything Apple does is about getting you to get more into the Apple ecosystem. Um, and you know, so Apple Pay leads us to kind of the, there's the initial Apple card, which is more around peer-to-peer, and then there's the cash card, and then there's the credit card. And then that has discounts on the Apple store. And it really is this like really nice circular ecosystem they're building they're playing a 20-year game to get you to do more apple things and so the ecosystem they've built around apple pay and the card is really really strong and i think understood on the consumer side they don't have an equivalent ecosystem on the merchant side and this could be one piece of a play in in, in that um, and it competes directly with with where square's going for which is that micro merchant and really thinking about how do you close that redemption loop and understand somebody's entire purchasing behavior and shopping behavior and start doing rewards loyalty offers all of that sort of stuff and i think apple has possibly a bit more brand permission to do that than google does given that they are considered quite strong from a privacy perspective they could do things along those lines whether or not they will and whether or not they've got the the data capabilities to do that i don't really know but i don't know what it is but it feels like merchant ecosystem plus apple tax in the physical space a bit like they have around itunes and the app store it's something in that but i don't know what it is exactly yeah, and this is the whole thing. This is how we've come to sort of treat these acquisitions um, from Apple. And I think you're right. I think when you look at it just on the face of it, yes, this seems to be a direct play to compete with the likes of Square and Isessel. I think you make a really good point, which is what's the bigger picture? Um, how are they sort of like lassoing us a little bit more into the ecosystem, into the ecosystem? Um, Philip, it'd be good to get your thoughts on, I guess, how much of a threat this might be to the likes of, of Square and Isessel. Um, or is this actually just a much bigger play and, and is it going to impact really broadly just more industries and more competitors than we can even think? I'd love to be a fly on the wall when this news broke in places like Square. <laughs> they're thinking, what does this mean for us? And uh, I'm sure that they're wondering exactly that question. I would imagine that it does mean that there's more players. I think actually one of the things that fascinates me about it is that it looks like people are trying more and more for the sole proprietor. They actually want to get connected with people who have businesses and are consumers. They're not just looking for the big merchants. They might be also looking for the smaller merchants. And um, and that seems to play into everything we're seeing right now in this ecosystem, which is it's all very personal. It's all very much, I want a relationship with you and everything that you do, including your business. And that's how it feels to me. With Apple, I'm sure they have bigger merchant plays as well. But that's the thing that strikes me from the beginning. Yeah, I guess something that just popped into my head when you were sort of making that point as well, and it probably goes back to, to Emily's earlier point about hardware. Um, and I wonder, is there potential here to hit acquirers' business lines and selling the point-of-sale terminals? Because actually, if I've already got a, an iPhone, then I don't have to pay the thousands of pounds that it is to buy one of those terminals and keep it on my stall or my, my shop counter. Well, and lots of people right now, they have their phone with Square on it. That's what they're doing. 
So I think he plays squarely at that. Huh. Didn't mean that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. Um, but Square's doing okay. I mean, if yeah. you look at their results, they're they're absolutely smashing it out of the park, and they uh, have got a pit. They've got a merchant business that does really well, but they've got a consumer business as well that does extremely well. They become they are low key sort of positioned to be a banking platform on both sides of the equation in a way that I think a lot of others aren't. And I mean, you know, we were talking about Google earlier. If you were looking at who's really smashing it in the US in the fintech space at the moment, Square. Um, their their sort of Square Cash is is absolutely the default. And if they can bring together those two things in some way, they could do something really, really powerful. And can Apple go and compete with that on the merchant side? I think they needed a hook. They needed something. And not having to have the expensive terminals part of it. Can they do something with the fact that they're already got relationships with lots of banks and that they have all of this might and all of this ecosystem? Um, you, you've got to bet that they would. Yeah, and Square have already found so many niches within their existing businesses, like targeted lending towards their SME at point of sale and all of this sort of stuff. So I completely agree they're doing quite well. Okay, we're going to move on now as we're getting to the end of the show. Just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover. There's so much happening this week, we can't cover it all. But these stories definitely deserved a shout out. So Simon, you want to start? I want to start, but I just want to say smoothest segue ever, Ross. Nice one. Um, really appreciate it. <laughs> he's giving us thumbs up. Uh, the first story we didn't have time to cover was from the Wall Street Journal, and it's about a firm preparing their IPO that could value them at more than ten billion US dollars. So, so much for fintech being over. There's a lot more to come. Uh, so, a firm, of course, uh, founded by former PayPal mafia Max Levshin, said it's going to be joining with Shopify in a partnership earlier in the month. Um, that this valuation, this IPO, would value them at nearly 10 billion um, and of course if you're not f- familiar a firm is the buy now pay later option at uh, a checkout in many e-commerce stores uh, they were actually valued at 2.9 billion just a little over a year ago in april 2019 according to PitchBook. but its targets risen um between the 5 and 10 billion mark uh really interesting example of a business to your point earlier ross that has done well with data uh interesting one to watch that buy now pay later space people are always is it in the consumer's interest is it not there was a stat i saw somewhere um about a week ago from max levchin as well who was saying um that about uh 50 of people at checkout would rather use the buy now pay later option than their credit rewards card in the US. So like damn with the air miles, this is just so convenient, I'm going to use it. So it's an interesting type of lending. And it's again, part of the point um, that you were making earlier, uh, this macro shift away from uh, credit towards debit and other types of lending in the US. And this is this is a big part of that. Totally. And it feels fit for purpose in terms of how people are um, are shopping online um, in, in, in the modern age. I think my favorite story that concerns Max Levchin was uh, he started a firm because he could not get financing on a car, and this is despite having already exited from PayPal. So, you know, it just shows you what we talked about earlier, that, that credit decisioning um, issue in the U.S., particularly with the big banks. Yeah. So uh, our next story comes from Finextra and concerns Metro Bank acquiring P2P lender rates out of something uh, I think Emily touched on earlier. So Metro Bank is to buy distressed P2P lender rates setter for a bargain basement initial price of £2.5 million. Metro Bank is buying the firm for an initial consideration of £2.5 million with a further half a million pounds due in 12 months and a potential £9 million payout on the third anniversary, subject to the satisfaction of performance criteria. Under the deal, Metro Bank will assume no credit risk for existing loans at risk of default. The buyout comes just weeks after the UK's largest P2P lender slashed the interest rate paid to investors by 50% in anticipation of a wave of defaults under COVID-19. Ratesetter says 6% of borrowers have requested a payment freeze, and as a result, it has increased its projected loan losses from 27.5 million to 39.2 million. This is obviously a disappointing Sale price for rate setter who raised funding of up to uh, 43 million. But I think as we were saying earlier in the show, just a real illustration of the sort of harsh realities of a, a, a down cycle like uh, COVID-19, obviously potentially a great move for uh, for Metro Bank, but really tough for the guys over at, um, at rate setter. Uh, Simon, over to you for the next one. 
Yeah, story from the India Times. WhatsApp are apparently entering the lending and microfinancing sector. So the head of WhatsApp India revealed that they're going to team up with the Reserve Bank of India to drive a five-year financial inclusion strategy, including with initial projects in small business loans, small pensions, and insurance. Uh, WhatsApp regards India as its largest market with more than 400 million users. Uh, the company tied up with Indian banks such as ICICI, uh, Kotak, Mahindra, uh, HDFC Bank, as well as many others to communicate through customers through automated uh, text messages in its business services capability, which from a, a low data, low cost standpoint makes uh, makes a lot of sense. And of course, this comes on the back of significant investments from many tech companies around the world, I think, including Google and Facebook, uh, into Reliance Geo. Uh, Reliance Geo being uh, the largest telco operator, but potentially in a position of being the super app and platform for India. But of course, the India internet model looks fundamentally different. The India stack with the Adar identity system the universal payments infrastructure really does make it look fundamentally different. And then potentially they're looking at building universal uh, sort of credit data centrally organized by government. So if this partnership between WhatsApp and the banks can enable them to get there, we could see an awful lot happening with consumers in India in the near future. Definitely absolutely worth a case study. I don't know if anybody listening reads Stratechery by Ben Thompson, but he did a great piece all about um, the three internets of India, China, and the USA, and the Indian internet model with Reliance Geo at the middle of it is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, for sure. I think um, very quickly, Emily, I don't know if you've got any thoughts from your sort of uh, tech lens perspective, but obviously it feels like there's, there's, there's huge potential there. There's definitely some potential for sure. And it's nice that to see WhatsApp kind of moving on in this area because previously they said they were going to start rolling out their payments infrastructure in Brazil and then kind of had to put that on hold while the Brazilian regulator said, oh, hang on a minute, we're not too sure if we're going to let you do that. Um, so it's good to see that they're at least still pursuing the idea of payments and especially India is a great place to start given how popular the app is there. So Yeah, I definitely need to work with the regulators still to make it happen. So yeah, yeah thanks for that. Okay, and finally... We haven't talked about it for two weeks, but it's back in the news again. It is your Wirecard Roundup. So this story comes from the FT and concerns, quite fantastically, uh, Wirecard processing payments from mafia-linked casinos. So this story just kind of runs and runs. Wirecard processed payments for a Maltese online casino that was later revealed to have laundered money for a powerful arm of the Ndrangheta, apologies if I've mispronounced that for any of the Italians listening, one of Europe's most dangerous mafia organizations. Italian legal sources and documents seen by the Financial Times confirm that up to 2017, Wirecard processed payments for Centurion Bet, a Malta-based gaming company that was later judged by Italian courts to have been used by organized criminals, to move cash out of the country in a sophisticated money laundering operation. In 2017, Centurion Bet's gambling license was suspended by Maltese authorities, and it ceased trading after an anti-mafia raid that saw 68 people arrested. Revenues from Centurion Bet did comprise only a tiny fraction of Wirecard's global operations, but the discovery, of course, raises further questions about the business model of the German company, once lauded as a pioneer of European fintech. So I'm just going to throw this out. I mean, where's this going to end? Because there's just so many incredible stories coming out about Wirecard at the moment. I feel for anybody that's trying to make a documentary because this thing just keeps moving. Like, where, where do you where do you keep up with it? And the, the thing with this is as well, there's just, I feel like we're going to need a jingle for like the weekly Wirecard yeah. weirdness. Um, like, what... And what's crazy about this is uh, just let's not forget, this was the darling of the German tech scene. This was uh, considered as really, really like absolutely amazing by um, Barfin, the regulator, and, and to the point where they were actively defending Wirecard against A, short sellers, and B, against journalists, and sort of almost suggesting that the short sellers and the journalists were doing something inappropriate. And now all of this is coming out. And then let's also forget that overwhelmingly, most of the people that worked at Wirecard thought it was a great place to work, thought it had amazing HR policies, thought it had an amazing atmosphere. So like this sort of almost, um, this duality, this bifurcation, this barbell of experience is really, really interesting. You just don't get stuff like this. Um, so I am bamboozled. Yeah, I yeah, I, I know. And we keep covering it. And, you know, we keep saying, well, well, well surely this is it. I mean, Emily is a as a journalist, at the rate that this keeps developing, it must be uh, must be a bit of a dream story, right? 
I mean, there's definitely a book on the cards for someone. Let's put it that way. I don't know about documentaries. Simon said there's way too many layers and it keeps developing, but a book you can spend a couple of years on. So I'm sure we'll see one of those eventually, probably from Dan McCrum, actually, the FT journalist who's done most of these investigations. Um, but it's also not ending for Wirecard at this point. They're still chasing the various executives across the world, trying to find everybody. And we've now heard that potentially one of the executives they were looking for might actually not be alive anymore in the Philippines. So um, it's a story that just keeps on bringing new angles and new challenges as well for journalists trying to keep track of it all. Yeah, so you're right. It seems like mysterious um, deaths are only the the sort of next instalment. I don't think this is going to be a uh, a single instalment documentary. I think they're going to need not even a mini series, like a mega series. Um, Philippa, do you care to hazard a guess on uh, what's coming next on this one? It's a bit like watching Game of Thrones. I'm just waiting to see who's going to turn next or what new surprise is coming. I think it just, it's shocking. It really is shocking. And um, and the question I think everybody in the industry asks themselves is, how do we make sure this isn't happening here? What are we doing to make sure this is not happening here? And that's with every scandal and every implosion that we see, those are always the questions that we ask ourselves. Let's go check and make sure that we have all the controls in place, that we actually have transparency. How did this opaqueness survive for so long? Yeah, and it seems it wasn't even opaque. I mean, there were so many um, traders taking short positions for so long based on the accounts, and, you know, things didn't add up. And what's interesting is very few of those short sellers actually made any real returns because contrary to any common sense, the share price kept rising in response to what would normally take that down. And it just became too long to hold those, it became too expensive to hold those positions. So um, definitely not looking like a victory for uh, for common sense, this one. But I think like we said, in terms of in terms of what's coming next, I guess we just got to stay tuned. Weekly Wirecard Wiener, weirdness. Oh God, that's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Weekly Wirecard Wiener would be a very different show. <laughs> uh yeah it would no it absolutely would um cool um i think on that it was quite a worthy note on which to end so that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to all our guests uh where can people find out more about you let's uh, start with you philippa um well at borrowmoney.com and on linkedin you'll find me there please come find me super uh emily uh, you can read all my stories on cityam.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. Excellent. And Simon? Bit.ly forward slash banking as a service or uh, at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me Simon at 11fs.com. Great. And as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. So thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. Speaking of making it better, please do not forget to give us your thoughts via our super quick survey, bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or fintech insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.